So I, I can kind of hear someone uh, coming to church and say, well, what, what have y'all been talking about a lot lately? And it's just like, well, canker sores and fleas. Um, it's an interesting passage of scripture. And what would tend to strike up in the mind of a, a child would be these very amazing uh, plagues of God. And so it's really where we're at. But one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is why? why what, what are these 10 plagues about? And what is this significance? And really something we have to ask in all of Scripture is what is, what is God saying through these events and through His words here? And so we come to this section Especially, I want to talk a little bit more about the, uh, I've talked about plagues one through four a couple of weeks ago, and then I want to talk about plagues five through nine, then I want to spend just some special time on the 10th plague because it so relates to the coming of Jesus Christ and God's son, the plague of the firstborn. We recognize that that has a lot to do with, sounds similar to John 3.16 where to overcome the plague of sin in the world, God had to give His firstborn Son. And so you see a lot of similarities when we study the plagues of the Old Testament. There was a lot of what we call foreshadowing, a looking forward, or teaching a lesson in a current context that would have much larger and future ramifications. So let me pray as we dig into this. Father, we just pray that you would take this old section, this section of the Old Testament, and make it new that you would help us to see that it wasn't just a one-time thing that had no relevance for the future, but that it was part of the great thing that you were doing all along and it points to the greatest event that ever happened in the history of the world, that it had to do with the coming of Jesus Christ as the answer, the remedy to all the plagues of this world and to all the false gods of this world, all the places, all the things we put our hope in, God have to be torn down and destroyed so that we can put our hope finally in you as the one who prevails. And help us to see this contrast, this conflict taking place. And without question, may our response at the end of every single plague be that God is greater and we put our faith in God, not in the gods of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to um, talk about this phrase that sometimes comes up in, in boxing, and you may not be a big boxing fan and, or anything like that, but there's a phrase in boxing that would help you. And sometimes people say uh, when someone is a boxer and they have this ability to keep taking punches and they just like, man, the other guy gives them a really good shot. And it's like, man, they, they're still there. They're still standing. And they take another shot. And it's like, whoa, this guy, they, they sometimes say he has a strong chin. And what that means is that he keeps taking shots that would knock out every other person. And this guy just keeps standing there taking it. And so Pharaoh's got a strong chin. God strikes him nine times before round ten takes him out. But it's not because Pharaoh necessarily in and of himself is so strong. It's because God has a purpose for Pharaoh and God even strengthens Pharaoh in his resistance against God to display the greater glory of God and why everyone should put their hope and faith in God himself. So that just gives you a little bit of a picture to this. So 
to go 10 rounds with God before being knocked to his knees is a fight for the ages of Pharaoh. God wants us to be very familiar with the 10 plagues and how he set up one of the Bible's all-time great victories between God and Satan. I'm sure you're aware of this, but from the beginning of the Bible to the end, there's a contest taking place, and it's between God, who is the righteous king of the universe and utterly sovereign, and his next closest to competitor, who is Satan or Lucifer. And it's not even a contest. God never loses a round. God never, Satan never outmaneuvers, outfoxes, outsmarts God. He thinks he's got Jesus. He thinks he's got God out when he nails him to the cross. But what a mistake that was. And that's the story we see time and time again, all the way from the Garden of Eden between the contest between God and the serpent, even beforehand, the contest between God and Lucifer in heaven, and he, uh, he assaults God's throne, and he's cast out. And then in Eden, he brings his rebellion to God against, into the world and humanity, and we have this contest taking place. And guess who rises victorious? The Son of God. Jesus Christ is the great victor in this big drama, this big story that we're studying and reading. So let me give you a little summary. The early history of the Jewish nation involved 400-year period of time in the land of Egypt. So they're in Egypt for 400 years. A godless man named Abraham, Abram at the time, was told by God, like Abraham wasn't a believer when God first came to him. So he was a, what we would call a pagan. So a, a godless pagan, a pagan man named Abram was told by God I, in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the story of Israel begins with a man named Abram who didn't even believe in the true God. And God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Very unlikely story. So Abram became Abraham and he wandered about learning the ways of God, having many great experiences with God and God promised to give a vast area of land to his descendants. So God says, I chose you and I'm going to give you a big old chunk of land. And he's like, I'm just a guy. What am I going to be doing with a great big old chunk of land? Well, I don't mean 40 acres up East Caney Fork. He's going to give him a nation, a big chunk of land, and turn him into a nation. And he says, however, he was told that the first, but first your offspring will be sojourners in a land, which was, we know now to be Egypt, not their own, and, serve, and, and will be servants there. So they're going to, before you inherit this, you're really not even going to get to see the fruit of this, but your, your descendants will. But it's going to take 400 years and they're going to have to go through a rough road. And they're going to be slaves or servants in Egypt. And then God says, but I will, they will be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on that nation. And that's what we're watching unfold. It's what God had prophesied. And God's now, the plagues are the un, un, uh, unleashing of the wrath of God, the judgment of God upon the wicked people of Egypt who had so many opportunities to turn to God 
and they did not. So Exodus is the tail end of that 400 year story that leads to God's covenant with the nation of Israel. And by the way, Exodus is just the beginning of a much larger. So Exodus is the tail end of that story, but it's just the beginning of a much larger story that leads 1,500 years later to the Son of God who died upon the cross to make a new covenant with all who believe in Jesus. So it's all part of the same story. So one of my jobs as a minister to study this book and help you understand how all things lead to the cross. Okay, you understand that with your Bible? If you're new here, new Christian, all things lead to the cross. Genesis leads to the cross. Revelation points to the cross. Everything leads to the cross and goes forward from there. Okay, so it's just very important. It's one of the things that God has called every preacher, every evangelist, every Christian to teach and learn and to teach your children this, to teach your friends this, talk about it at home, how all things lead to the cross. Eventually, we have to end up at the cross where Jesus won the ultimate battle against Satan, okay? So let me kind of give a little bit of a, a review. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was an Egyptian, only discover he was a Jew. And then he spent 40 years thinking he was a nobody, only to discover his true assignment from God. And then he spent 40 years of his life carrying out the great work of his life, one of the greatest lives in all of the world. He was told to go and rescue the Jewish people from one of the all-time great tyrants. Pharaoh was a tyrant. He was an enormous tyrant, like most... Well, like all dictators, the world is full of tyrants. In the Bible story, Pharaoh is a very great tyrant. And he was told that Pharaoh would be one of the most stubborn and resistant opponents of God in history. And so, reading through Exodus, you, you pick this up, like how stubborn Pharaoh is. <clears throat> and you know people like that, but you're not one of them, right? You're not resistant to the will of God, stubborn. I've said this many times in this little series. Little Pharaoh lives in every house. Okay, little Pharaoh's in your house, in your heart. A little bit of Pharaoh in all of us, okay, that we have to, we have to tell him to stop trying to take um, what belongs to God and bow. It's really hard for the little Pharaoh that lives inside of me to bow my heart and my will to God. But every day I have to kick little Pharaoh out. Because he doesn't do anything good for me. Okay, but that's kind of the storyline. So God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God said, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do. So God tells us at the beginning of Exodus, he says, I'm going to show some amazing glory but I'm going to have to intensify um, Pharaoh's resistance to get there. Otherwise, he would quit too soon. It's like God's like, I, want, I got 10 things I want to show you. And anybody else would quit at round two, round three. So God strengthens Pharaoh's resolve so that God can go through round 10. Because round 10 and the 10th plague is the one where we're going to see the most glory. Because it reflects upon the coming of Jesus and how God <clears throat> gives his son willfully to be our savior. So can you kind of see this? And he's told over and over again, Satan's stubborn, 
Pharaoh's stubborn. He's not going to give up easily. <coughs> and we see that in every single one of these uh, plagues. Okay, Exodus 5, 2. When Pharaoh's first encounter with God, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You ever been there? Who is the Lord that I, put your name there, should obey God? If you're not a Christian, that's you. If you are a Christian, then that was you until you said, Yes, I want to become a Christian. This is our posture against God. Who is the Lord that I should serve Him? Who is the Lord that I should give the steering wheel to Him? Who is the Lord that I should give my dating life to Him? Who is the Lord that I should give my future to Him? Who is the Lord that I should give my finances to Him? Who is the Lord that I should give my talents to Him? My, uh, my everything to Him. And so we all stand there a lot like Pharaoh and God is saying, how long is it going to take you? One round? Or ten rounds. And in this case, the sooner you bow, the better you're going to be. And that's where the, the gospel comes in. So over and over we see this repetition. The first one, and keep this in mind, every plague is a defeat of one of Egypt's idols. Egyptians had idols for everything. And every plague was uniquely designed by God to strike at the core of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. It's like, it's all theological. It's a contest not between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a really a contest between God and Satan. And that's what's playing out here. And Satan has many names and many disguises and people look to many things. And the Egyptians had many gods and every plague represented some particular God of the Egyptians and one by one, God's just knocking them off, knocking them off, knocking them off. You want to put your hope in the Nile River? Knocks the God of the Nile out. You want to put your hope in frogs? And we may think that's kind of comical, but frogs represented the life-giving source of the Nile River. And so among the many gods of Egypt, they had the, the frogs. There was a God of the Nile and fertility. <coughs> excuse me, who was part of that um, Egyptian, uh, their ideology and their religion. <clears throat> and then we have, could, could someone do me a favor? You get me a glass of water. Thank you. Oh, never mind. I have Miss Mary's. You're too slow, Josh. Okay. Ooh, there's lipstick on it. <laughs> Just teasing. Oh, that helped a lot. Okay, <clears throat> so the first one, at the end of the first one, <clears throat> I'll get there. I don't usually have this problem, but <sighs> okay, uh, the first one was changing the water to blood, and we're not at all surprised when we come to the end. It says Pharaoh's heart remain hardened. And then it says, um, Pharaoh turned, went into his house, and didn't even take this into heart. Uh, maybe the first time you heard the gospel, you're like that. Then the second time, it's frogs. So in the second plague, Moses stretched out his hand and staff and uh, said he, um, frogs went everywhere. And his response 
is in chapter 8, verse 15. When Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, next comes gnats or flies or lice. And so Moses struck the dust with his rod and gnats um, went everywhere. And the, there's a God named Seb of the Egyptians. So God defeats that God. And the Egyptians say this has to be the finger of God. <coughs> the reason they say that is because they can't reproduce this, uh, this plague. And they're like going, wow, that, that had to be God. We're not surprised. 8 verse 19. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Like the Lord's already said that. Number four, flies. Everywhere. Um, then God set apart the Israelites. Remember the first three plagues, the Israelites had to experience the tragedy of those plagues. Just by being in association, being in the world, they had to experience many of the hardships. But in plague number four, the flies, God says, well, I'm, I'm going to show my, I'm going to show you what I can do. I'm going to show you how much superior the God of Israel is to the God of the Egyptians. And so God makes a distinction. And so he protects the land where the Israelites live, live called Goshen. And so the flies didn't go over into Goshen. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, Go sacrifice, but only locally. Like he is not ready to bow yet. Oh, thank you. you. All right, this one has ice, Mary. He's one up on you. And I hope his doesn't have lipstick. Okay. All right, so um, then he said, uh, so the flies go everywhere. Another plague, another display of that. And we come to number five and that's where we are today. And God says, okay, um, you're not ready to bow to me. And Pharaoh says, no way. And he says, okay, I'm going to take out your meat, all your meat, all your livestock, all the animals, all the, all your livestock, the things that they needed for life. Um, Horses, donkeys, camels, all the herds, but nothing in, among the Israelites. None of their animals died. And it says it happened just as the Lord, the Lord set a time and the next day it happened. So first time Moses uses his rod. Second time Moses uses his rod. Third time they use a rod. Fourth time they don't need a rod. God just speaks. We see God is the God of creation. He can speak. It's not his rod. Just in case the magicians go, man, I'd sure like to get hold of that rod. If I had that rod, we could do these great tricks. It's like, it's not the rod. It's God. So this time he puts the rod aside. He's going to keep using the rod, but it's like, no, it's, it's, not, it's not a magic stick. Remember Simon the sorcerer in the New Testament said, man, how'd you guys do that? That was a cool trick. They wanted to buy the ability to give the Holy Spirit to other people. He thought it was in some magical trick. And God's not in the magic tricks. He uses real power. And so he, this time he just speaks it. And, and then he, Pharaoh was so interested. And he says, well, hey, did all the animals <coughs> over in Goshen die too? And he sends some 
people over there to check it out. And it's like, no, all the animals in Goshen are fine. And so imagine those people who were over there checking it out or thinking, man, how does that even happen? How does everywhere all of our animals died and over here in Goshen, the animals are fine? Do you think it humbled Pharaoh? No. It says, um, the Pharaoh, as soon as Pharaoh would find out anything, he would harden his heart. Then we get to, uh, in Exodus 9, 7, after the livestock, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He did not let the people go. Next is boils, <clears throat> skin disease, horrible disease. Um, I'm sure some of you have had some skin diseases. You have those little things that are irritants like mosquito bites and poison ivy and poison oak, and then it gets worse. There's other skin diseases that are bigger, much more severe, um, things you have to go get more medication for. There's skin diseases that spread, and they had horrible, horrible boils. And this time, all Moses did is he took some um, soot, he took some uh, ashes like from a fire, and he goes and stands before Pharaoh, and he takes these ashes, and he just throws them up. And it's wind catches it, and it goes everywhere, and people start breaking out in boils. So bad that, <clears throat> that I find this so fascinating. I didn't even catch this until this week when I was reading this. It says the magicians were driven out of the presence of Pharaoh. You, you, you remember that? But guess who it didn't drive out? Pharaoh. Pharaoh stood defiant. I'm even wondering, as I go back and read this, I'm thinking, did Pharaoh not get any of these diseases himself? He was willing to sacrifice. This tells you what a tyrant will do. He was willing to sacrifice his entire nation of people. He didn't even care that disaster came on them. He was such a tyrant, such a devil, such demonic, so narcissist. He didn't even care if everyone else went down. He was their leader. He was supposed to protect them, defend them. But he, a tyrant reverses this. A tyrant says, you exist for my goals. Do any of y'all remember hearing at the end of uh, World War II and Hitler was actually angry at the people of Germany for forsaking him? He was so narcissist that he believed and he was angry. He says, how dare the nation betray me? What a mind case. And here we have Pharaoh standing there. Even his magicians can't even stand in front of Moses. And I'm wondering either <coughs> Pharaoh had it, but the implication seems to be maybe he didn't even get it. Maybe God's like, no, this is on you. I'm going to make you bow and, and you're going to watch other people hurt until finally in the final plague it affects you personally. And that's when God ends up taking his son. Either way, if Pharaoh had it or he didn't, it just shows how obstinate he was. So guess what he does at the end of the, the boils? In chapter 9, verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. It's like everything just like what it says. You want me to tell you about this book and how it's going to end? Just as the Lord says. Isn't this cool? 
When it's like, and Moses did this and Pharaoh acted just like God said. And people today are looking around and they're watching the world and they're going, well, how's it going to turn out? I'm going to tell you how, just like God said. Isn't that cool? And I'm going to tell you what, it's not going to stop a day short because God's going to continue to harden the heart of people who have no interest in God and they're going to stay with it until God gets his glory and Jesus comes and all the plagues in the book of Revelation will be fulfilled because otherwise if the whole world repented, it would be over, which would be a wonderful thing. But in God's plan, God wants to show his glory and there's a lot of glory at the end of the story for God. There's a lot of glory in the book of Revelation for God. It's terrifying, but it's glorifying. It's terrifying to those who simply refuse to bow. They will not go out till the 10th round. And we might be in round seven right now. We might be in round nine. I don't know. Round nine was darkness. It feels like there's a darkness to me. We might be round nine, but I'm going to tell you what. There are people that will not go down on their knees. They will go out cursing God, resisting God. They refuse. And that's what this story is about. It's a parallel. Can you not see this? This is, not, this is a little play in the big play. This is a little picture of what's going to happen. The, the, the wrath of God in Sodom and Gomorrah, that's a little picture of the coming wrath to come. Noah and the judgment of God upon people is just a little picture of the, the end of the story. Everything's just moving along. The wrath of God upon his own people when they refuse to obey God. The, the, the fall of... Babylon, the fall of um, Jerusalem in 586, the 722 in the northern kingdom was attacked by Assyrians, the Babylonians in 586, the period of time when they had no monarch waiting for Jesus to come, and then the whole thing, and then the way many people, even the Jewish nation, sort of turned their heart away from God. It's all, this, all what happens when we move away from God and we remain in our rebellion no matter what God sends our way, no matter how many times God says, I've given you this opportunity, this opportunity. And we have Christians, we have Christian people telling us, people in pulpits saying, oh, that's, that's not God. Oh, that's not God. only does sweet things. What book are you reading? The Bible says God is terrifying to those who don't love Him. And he's protecting and loving like a father and he will protect you like a mama bear. God will take care of you. He says, come over to the land of Goshen. Why, why would you? He even raises this question to Pharaoh. Why do you keep resisting? Will you ever bow? And that, how many times? I don't know. It took 15 years before I bowed. But if it weren't for the grace of God, I would have never bowed. Left to myself, I would have never bowed to the grace of God. I would have continued saying, I want to drive. I want to be in charge of my life. I want to determine who I hang out with. I don't want you in my business. That's the Pharaoh spirit. Alive in the world. And if anyone wants to be in Pharaoh's house, he will go down with the ship. And God's saying, do you see my warnings? My, my warnings? If you're alive after an outpouring of God's judgment, then the very fact that you're alive means that you get the message. It's a mercy to be alive after a judgment. Does it not say this is serious business. Turn your heart to God. And we see this time and time again through the scripture. And the, the ten plagues is one of the most obvious, most patent, clear 
obvious accounts of God gave them ten times. People say, how can God be so cruel to that? How can God be so kind? He should have wiped them all out. How could God be so kind for there to be a Genesis chapter 4? Genesis 3 should have been the end. Sin against God, it's over. That's justice. But mercy is Genesis 3 chapter 15. It's after the sin comes mercy. And then there's this period of time. It's like, you got this time, folks. You got this time. You not see the way your life is going. Some people say, I don't believe in God because of the bad things. The bad things are so that you will see God. That's the whole point. It's so amazing how Satan distorts our thinking and says, well, I don't believe in a God who causes this. So the God who is over this is saying, wake up. This is not your little vacation. This is like the one moment to find your way to Him and He does extraordinary things so that you will see that there is a God. And so that's what He's doing. So the next thing comes is He sends hell. And He says, let my people go. And that's what God says to the devil right now. Let my people go. And the devil says, uh-uh. Mm. I've got them in bondage. I ain't about to let them go. He will not bow to God. He will never bow to God. He will only be crushed. And he's been crushed. Jesus crushed him at the cross. But it wasn't the finality of it. It was the declaration of it. It was final intents of the accomplishment of it. It is finished, as Jesus declared. It is finished. But it's not finished in terms of the enduration, the duration of it. Satan is still hanging in there, fighting for all he can. He's in the last round, and he's fighting for all he can. And so the picture is Pharaoh is a picture. And now comes round seven, or the plague seven, and hell <coughs> comes down. And he says in chapter 9... God brings this curse and even the people of, of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt are beginning to abandon, say, uh, abandon Pharaoh and the people of many Egyptians begin listening to the word of the Lord and it says whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of, of Pharaoh hurried his slavers and his livestock into the houses whoever did not pay attention left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So we have this place where people in the world on the wrong side are starting to look and they're beginning to say maybe God is safe maybe God is the answer and so right now we're out there and we're trying to show people and live our lives and maybe by the grace of God someone's going to look at your life and go well, maybe I should consider God isn't that cool that God is using your life and your stance and your devotion to God and the way you spend your money and the way you entertain yourself should be pointing people and making people question their own loyalty to this world. They should be going, I don't know, there's something about those Christians. It's different the way they raise their kids. It's different the way they talk. They spend their money differently than we do. They entertain very differently. And by the way, may you entertain very differently. I hope and pray that you entertain very differently because that entertainment, if you just let the world entertain you, the devil comes in with it. 
And so you have to be careful. And people should be looking at you and watching and go, man, I, I think I might want to consider changing sides here. And the Egyptians were beginning to say, I think we might want to change sides. Maybe Pharaoh's not so powerful. He's definitely more powerful than all of us, but maybe he's not so powerful compared to God. They didn't ever really see a contest or a challenge before. And so that's what they began to see. And they had hell falling down. And it destroyed everything. And so Pharaoh gives a little hint, a little smidgen. He says, this time I have sinned. That's all Pharaoh had ever done was sin. But he says, maybe in this instance I sinned a little. That is not a confession. He's trying to buy his way out of this thing. Well, maybe if I say the right words, Moses will call on his God and we'll slide under another, get through another plague. But then we're not surprised at all when it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and then come locusts. And no, there again we see the locusts eat up everything else that's left so they have no food. And it says that Pharaoh's servants... They're getting nervous. They're getting anxious. Going, man, this, this tyrant's going to take us all out. You, if you remember toward the end of most regimes of tyrants, the people around them, while they're climbing, everything seems good and they're gaining power. And all of a sudden when they get power, everyone starts realizing, even the people that helped them get there, that this is the most wicked, vile person I've ever met in my life. How in the world did we let him become the dictator of Cuba or the ruler of China or the um, emperor of some kingdom. And everyone on the way up thinks he's great until he gets there and he turns on you. Everyone thinks, no, nah, the world's fine. I don't need God. I'll just serve Satan. And they think Satan's not watching and think Satan and the world will just be fine. And he's like, no, it's fine. I'm young. I'm healthy. I can play. I can do whatever I want to. I don't have to pay attention to boundaries, rules. I'm not going to be stupid. I can mess with drugs, but I'll never be addicted. I can mess with sex, but I'll never be addicted. I'll enjoy this world and drink all its delights, but I'll never be addicted. I'll turn around at the last minute and turn out to cry out to God before I die. I'll slide safe at the end of the race. I'll just barely slide under the rope there and I'll make my peace with God. And Satan's like, Satan says, keep on thinking that. Keep on thinking that. Keep on messing with me. Hang with me a little longer, a little longer. And next thing you know, death will sneak up on you and you didn't get to slide under the rail because you got run over by a truck. And that's the way Satan's working. And that the people are starting to wake up and they're starting to go, man, I mean, maybe we need to break with Pharaoh. Maybe we need to break with our own power. <clears throat> the world has given us a lot of power. And that's why people don't want to, the, the people who had received a lot of benefit from Pharaoh. And they're like, I don't want to give up this world. But they're coming to the point to go, well, if we don't, we're all going to be destroyed. And so eventually, the last thing that comes is this darkness. And, and it's kind of hard to picture anything more clear spiritually than just utter darkness. They ended up in utter darkness. They couldn't even make their way around and they lost their way. That's the picture of someone who continues to resist God and they find themselves and they go, I don't know how to get out of this. And they get in such a place of despair. And they only want to die. They go, there is no remedy. And believe me, the devil would love for you to think that death is a remedy. The devil puts suicidal thoughts in people's minds and says, this is the remedy. That is the greatest lie of the devil because death is not the remedy for life. 
unless it's the death of another, and that would be Jesus Christ. Your death won't remedy anything, but the death of Jesus Christ on the cross says, come unto me and let my death restore you and bring light out of the darkness. You, you kind of see where this thing is going? You understand the plagues a little better now? You understand how they point to the coming of Christ? And there's one little phrase. There's so many phrases in this chapter that I um, highlighted, underlined, <clears throat> whatever uh, in here. And I want to I read this question that God posed to Pharaoh through Moses. God spoke to, to Pharaoh through Moses. God speaks through his word. And I'm standing here as his messenger, okay? I'm not, I'm not God. Moses was not God. Moses was a messenger of God. And he communicated to Pharaoh and everyone else a message from God. And I'm going to now, as a messenger of God, I'm going to communicate the exact, I'm going to use the words that God gave to Moses because God gave them to me in this book and he's given them to you. And I'm going to take a similar role as Moses and I'm going to ask you the question that was on God's heart. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? It's directly from God to you this morning. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The Bible says that Jesus Christ came into the darkness of this world and the darkness rejected him. And he defeated the darkness and he rose from the dead. And so I can't even tell you the, how that magnifies this question. When Moses asked the Egyptians and Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? He didn't even know the name of Jesus. And you do. <laughs> Can I even begin to tell you how much more culpable that makes us? We know what Jesus did on the cross for our sins in the face of such great knowledge. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? And for those of you who have humbled yourself, is there anything else to say? Then thank you, God. Thank you, God, for crushing my idols. Thank you for showing me the weakness of my hope if it was built on anything other than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Take down my idols. Then God says, let Jesus rise up in your heart. And that's the offer that I give to you today. Lord God.
We thank you that Jesus Christ has taken on our great enemy and defeated him once and forever. We thank you for the victory of the cross. We thank you for the narrative of the Bible that there is a day of judgment. But there was a day in history where Jesus Christ defeated Satan once and for all. And that is our hope, God. We're not hoping on uh, any of the gods of this world to save us. Where Our hope is not in money. It's not in longevity. It's not in our IQ. It's not in being street smart. It's not in the family we're attached to. It's not in picking the right church. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. He alone has the power to defeat Satan. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have defeated Satan. And right now, oh God, we claim that you are ready to extend your kingdom, that you're extending your kingdom into all the world. And I just pray right now, God, that if there's someone here that's been weighing in the balance, the two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, if you're here today and you're beginning to ponder and say, Lord God, are you real? Are you there? Are you light? Are you life? Would you receive me? You know my past. You know how many times I've resisted. But I am ready today to humble myself before the true and living God. I would fall on my face before you and claim you as King of kings and Lord of lords. I give my heart to you. I give my life to you. I come to you, Lord Jesus. Will you set me free from the flies and the darkness and the locusts and all the things that have been destructive in my life and all the ways that I have made idols of things that have crushed me and ruined my future? Will you restore what the locusts have eaten, O oh God? Will you give me hope and a future? Oh, Lord, I cry to you, have mercy upon my soul. Blessed be God who loves to save. Oh, God, I will be proud no more. And I fall on my face to humble myself and call you my Lord and my Savior. Come, Lord Jesus, deliver me from the bondage of death. Call upon the Lord and you shall be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and stand with us. You know, there's nothing in us um, that can make a difference in anybody's lives without Christ. In Galatians 2.20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.
The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. All the chains are released, I can sing, I am free, and not I, but through Christ in me. people, all of you entering in, and thank you those that had a part in this morning for the worship team. This is great. And all the tech, and everybody who played a role, the children's ministry, big house, and just what a, what a great morning so far. And thank you, Scott, for helping us and bringing us the word to crush our idols and the ongoing crushing of our idols. Amen. Amen. The King is coming. The Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And again, why? Because the King is coming. Amen? Amen.